Turn in your Bible, if you will, to Judges chapter 8 again. I did take a brief respite from our studies here last week and brought a message, or rather started a message on Calvary. And as you know, if it were left to me, that would be the theme and topic of every message on every Sabbath day for me. But I am constrained to return to our purposes in Judges chapter 8, in the book of Judges. And I read in your presence only the first three verses. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, that is, unto Gideon, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide him sharply. And he said unto them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison of you? And then their anger was abated toward him when he had said that. Turn your hymn book again with me, please. And stand and let us sing together number 694 before the message. Blessed are the sons of peace Whose hearts and hopes are one Whose kind designs To serve and please Through all their actions run Blessed is the pious house Where zeal and friendship meet Their songs of praise Their mingled vows Make their communion sweet from those celestial springs, such streams of pleasure flow as no increase 
of riches brings, nor honors can bestow. Thus when on Aaron's head they poured the rich perfume, the oil through all his raiment spread, and fragrance filled the room. Thus on the heavenly hills the saints are blessed above. Where joy like morning dew distills, and all the air is love. Thank you. Be seated. Here we go. Again, trouble from brethren. We come to this eighth chapter again today, and as I said, I had actually begun this message the week before last and hardly made a good, good beginning on it. I'll remind you that I tried to set the scene, as it were, of this chapter 8, just bringing you up to the point of its record by reminding you that we had watched Gideon now for all of his journey, all the way from that wine press and his first meeting of that blessed angel. We followed him through chapter 7, through to a final victory over these Midianite hordes who come annually and steal from God's people the blessings of God upon them. And we watched Gideon struggle. And I had much to say through those various messages, chapter 6 and 7, I had much to say about Gideon's struggles. But we watched him grow through those struggles, and I said that he had grown. We watched this tender plant faith grow up in him under the husbandry of that blessed angel until it grew planted by the rivers of sacred waters, blooming with precious fruit, fruit of faith. And then we watch those fruits in chapter 7 ripen into luscious clusters of obedience and finally triumph. And truly, it has been a glorious journey to watch. But then we come to chapter 8, and Gideon's battles are not over. Indeed, I mentioned 
in that message that some commentators have dared to say that his greatest battles are recorded not in chapter 7, but in chapter 8. Great battles yet await him, and as we shall see, he has not always fared well. We come to chapter 8 in our record, Gideon and his 300 men, faithful brothers, along with Israel, they have witnessed an unspeakable miracle. I said it to you in this way, that an unconquerable foe has been conquered. An insatiable oppressor for over seven years has been crushed in only one night without a single weapon in Israel's hand. <laughs> Miracle indeed. Israel has had this yoke of annual terror lifted and can finally breathe the refreshing air of freedom from tyranny and fear. And there remains, as we come to chapter 8, only a small band to be crushed and they're in flight. And we shall see those happenings later. Short order, there will be total victory. But before the conclusion of the conquest is recorded in chapter 8, when we come first to this chapter by God's inspiration, we come first to this scene in verse 1. We found out that Gideon had sent messengers out to his brethren in Ephraim to intercept those two princes, Oreb and Zeb, who had somehow managed to escape the general carnage of the battle the night before. And being as they were well equipped in a large tribe, they did in fact intercept those that were seeking to flee and took Zeb and Oreb and cut off their heads. And as was the manner and the custom of the day, they brought their heads to Gideon. And this is where our chapter opens this morning. They come to present the heads of these two Midianite princes to Gideon. This event, whatever we don't know much of the detail of it, ever how it took place, this presentation, under what exact circumstances, we don't know. But they came to bring these trophies, if you please, of God's victory, to give them to the Gideon. And we know from this record that it was not altogether a joyous occasion as one might expect. Nor was this Gideon's first encounter. That's why I titled the message, Here We Go Again. 
This was not his first encounter with trouble from his own brethren. One might well have expected that this great collective sigh of joyous relief in Israel would have cast this scene into a universal rejoicing and a consummate ceremony of praises to God and blessings on Gideon's head. But alas, when we come to verse 1 of chapter 8, we find it just is not so. Just here, with the trophies of God's grace in their very hands, even while no doubt outside this scene, Israel was yet pillaging the pillagers in the valley of Jezreel. And while surely every household in Israel was a buzz with the gladsome news of Gideon's triumph right here, right here on the heels of God's astounding grace, that vile and unholy canker of green-eyed carnal jealousy spews out its putrid venom right here. Adersheim, and I'll not read it to you, I read it to you before in full, but Adersheim, ever the historian that he is, sets this scene so beautifully and describes it. And then he concludes his description of the scene with these words. Strange and sad, said Adersheim, that their first meeting with Gideon after this victory should have been one of reproaches and strife on account of their not having been summoned first to the war. Strife springing from tribal jealousy which influenced such evil over the whole history of Ephraim. Strange and sad, says later time, that this scene should be set before us. What great lessons are here for us to be taught in this text. And I give you three. Number one, I give you this lesson. A lesson from the wording. As you know, I love to study deeply the words of Scripture and often find great instruction just in the uniqueness of the wording of a record. And so first I give you lessons from the wording of this record as this villainous deed is set before us in verse 1. And the men of Ephraim said unto Gideon, Why hast thou served us thus that Thou callest us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites. And they did chide with him sharply. And in the old King James Version, if you have the marginal reading, it's the word strongly. The translators were struggling to get out 
the full impact of the words used in this verse. One Hebrew scholar helping us to grasp this text in its original and the power of the words said, and I quote, these words are rough, ill language, keen and biting expressions, expressing great anger and wrath, and they were well crafted to tarnish the luster of any joy and douse the fires of any rejoicing that might have been had on this occasion. The wording in this text shocks us into the realization of how vile are the hearts of some of Gideon's own brethren. How vile can the hearts of some even among Christ's church be? I mentioned but did not turn there. John chapter 21. Dear old Peter. Even blessed Peter was not immune to this disease. In John 21 and verse 20. Then Peter turning about seeth the disciple who who loved, uh, who, whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter seeing him saith, Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? Jesus saith to him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Jealousy. Jealousy. Peter wants to know what's going to happen to this man. What about him? What about my place in comparison to his place? And Peter was not the only one with this problem. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Matthew 20 and verse 20. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her son. Zebedee's children with her sons worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he saith unto her, What wilt thou? And she saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. Jealousy. Desire to be seen, to be recognized. Oh, how great is the power of this spirit of jealousy among some of God's people in all ages. This spirit. Now I asked the question last time, and I will pursue its answer in some measure. What would cause any to want to do such a vile and ungrateful thing. As we read this verse 1 of chapter 8 and set it in its context, our minds almost recall from the sight. And we cannot but help to ask, what would cause anyone to do such a wicked, vile, and ungrateful thing using words to chide him sharply. What would cause that? Well, Ephraim, as you know, 
was a descendant of Joseph, as was Gideon, and therefore nearer kin to Gideon than the tribes that he called Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And as always, as is always the case with these selfish, self-interested, self-promoting zealots, they failed completely to notice that it was God that had chosen this army and not Gideon. God chose this army, not Gideon. Gideon had only been instrumental. And if they had noticed this fact, it would have enabled them to lose the sight of themselves in the work of God. That is, that it is God who works. God who receives the glory. And in that light, the instrument that he chooses loses interest. No longer is that important. I did, and I will again, pause to give you a lesson from a sidelight, if you please. Call it what you will. It's a lesson from this text. And no one could say it better than Bush in his book of sermons. And so I quote him to make the point. He said, the irritation which is here expressed seems to have originated in a prior state of jealous feelings existing on the part of Ephraim toward Manasseh. Ephraim was the brother to Manasseh, the tribe from which Gideon sprung, and probably priding themselves in the preeminence that had been assigned to them in the blessings of Jacob and Moses. They felt themselves to be superior. And thus the allusion in Isaiah chapter 9, 21, to the envy and mutual disaffection of these two tribes. The point Bush is making is that this had been a problem for a long time. This issue had been between these two tribes for a long time and they've allowed it to fester for a long time and it has festered until now it breaks itself forth in its ugly vileness in this verse 1 of chapter 8 in the setting of victory where they pour poison on all that could have been a blessing because they've allowed it to fester. I remind you, Ephraim, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26. The Bible said, let not the sun go down on your wrath. You allow these feelings to be harbored in your breast and carried forward and one day they'll spill over and mar the work of God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother, thy brother hath all against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. 
Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Don't let these things go. Don't let these things go. Don't let these things fester. Don't nurture this evil serpent in your bosom. There's a great lesson here. A great lesson here. All brothers, sisters, don't allow feelings to fester in your heart that are unholy and unhealthy. But in a great book of sermons, dear old Simeon asked the question that I put to you. What would cause such a spirit to possess the heart and bosom of a brother? And he gives the answer and I give it to you. We're still looking now. We're still looking at lessons from the words in this context. But I give you Simeon's Simple outline on what would cause such a spirit to possess a man's heart. Simeon says, number one, the pride of his own heart. Have you ever noticed how often it is that those that have the greatest burden of pride are those who actually have the least to be proud about. (laughs) Simeon said it this way, There is scarcely a society or even a single family to be found where the different members walk in perfect harmony together. In most circles, there are frequent disagreements. One or other of the members is unreasonable in his expectations and by the unquietness of his own disposition spreads dissatisfaction and disquietude all around him. The inquiry in the scripture, where come wars and fightings among you? St. James answers by an appeal to our own experience. Here is answer. Come they not hence, even from the lusts that war in your members? The chief sources of offense are discernible in the conduct of these Ephraimites, the pride of their own hearts. Could I describe it as an exaggerated self-image that has not been fully humbled in the presence of God's unabounding grace? I couldn't Put together a better description of what's happening here. What's wrong with these men. There is an exaggerated self-image in them. 
that has not been fully humbled in the presence of God's unabounding grace. Look what God has done for them. And yet, all they can think about is their own pride. They were afraid that Gideon's victory would somehow propel the tribe of Manasseh above them and supplant their superior standing. Matthew Poole said, These were a proud people, Isaiah 11.13 proves, puffed up with a conceit of their number and strength and the preference with the preference which Jacob, by divine direction, gave to them above Manasseh in Genesis 48 and verse 19, and of which Gideon was by this act, had seemed to advance his own tribe and to digress theirs. And because of that perception, they cannot even perceive the blessings of God, but only their own standing. Later on, Simeon said, the Ephraimites had evidently a high conceit of their own dignity and were offended that Gideon had not paid as much deference to them as they supposed themselves entitled to. And from this root of bitterness, it is that so many disputes arise in the church. Proverbs 13 tells us, only by pride cometh contention. And it is the testimony of God himself. See the proud man swelling with a sense of his own importance. If you differ from him in judgment or act contrary to his will, yea, if you do not comply with his humor in everything, he is quite indignant and burst forth into a rage. Even, Simeon says, even the best meant endeavors cannot always please him. As an inferior, he cannot brook the least restraint. As a superior, he never thinks that sufficient homage has been paid to him. And as an equal, he cannot endure that others should exercise the liberty which he arrogates to himself. To what an extent this domineering principle will prevail, we may see in the instance of Nebuchadnezzar, who because of the conscientious refusal of those Hebrews youths to bow down to his idol, the Bible says he was full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against them. And he ordered the furnace to be made seven times hotter than usual in order to destroy them. Why? Because he was so full of self-pride, he couldn't broach their resistance. Truly, there is no principle in the heart more adverse to the peace and happiness of God than this principle. There is no principle more averse to the peace and happiness of the people of God than this principle. Self-pride. 
But then Simeon says, secondly, to answer our question, what would cause people to be this way? Number two, envy at others. Envy at others. Simeon said, great honor accrued to Gideon. Great honor accrued to Gideon from the victory that had been gained. And the Ephraimites were grieved that others should possess a glory in which themselves had no share. And hence they broke forth into revilings against Gideon. Ever the pastor, ever the pastor, Simeon goes on to say, the same principle prevails more or less in all. The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. James chapter 4 and verse 5. The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. And how nearly is it allied with wrath? We see from those words of Eliphaz in Job chapter 5 and verse 2 when he said, Wrath killeth the foolish man and envy slayeth the silly one. Simeon goes on and says the examples of Cain and Joseph's brethren and Saul sufficiently mark the murderous tendency of this malignant passion. One evil particular to it is that it makes excellence itself the object of its attack. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an astounding observation Simeon made? One of the horrors one of the horrors of this particular trait is that it makes it makes excellency itself the mark of its murderous attacks. Gideon had delivered Israel and they attack him for it. One evil particular to it is that it makes excellence itself the object of its attack. As Solomon has observed in Ecclesiastes 4 and 4, for every right work, a man is envied of his neighbor. In Proverbs 27 verse 4, who can stand before envy? Not the benevolence of the apostles, nor the blameless conduct of our Lord himself, could ward off its malignant shafts. And wherever it exists, it will be attended with strife, railings, evil surmisings, and perverse disputings. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 4, James 3 and 16. Envy. Envy. What a malicious, deadly thing is this. But finally, Simeon gives us a third answer to the question, what would cause a man to do this? He says, from impetuosity of spirit. Impetuosity of spirit. Oh, what devastations hath impetuosity wrought in my life. 
Simeon says the Ephraimites would not give themselves any time for reflection or inquiry, but instantly began with vile inventions. It should seem that they were a hasty people, full of pride and wrath. And on another occasion, precisely similar to this one, they suffered for it in no slight degree. Later we'll see in Judges 12, 1 through 7, they suffered for no less than 2 and 40,000 of them were slain in consequence of this problem. Impetuosity. Simeon said, had they been at the pains of making inquiry, had they taken the time to make inquiry, they would have found that Gideon had committed no offense at all. He had acted altogether by the direction of God, and so far was he from being at liberty to increase his army by the addition of the Ephraimites. He was actually necessitated to reduce his army from 32,000 troops that were raised up to 300. Thus it is that innumerable quarrels arise when a moment's inquiry would show that no reason for them even exists. Impetuous. Had they taken the time just to look, They'd have found out he did nothing wrong and that he had no control in the matter. Dear old Simeon says, Behold, David, when Nabal had refused him the refreshments which he desired, nothing short of the death of Nabal and all his adherents was deemed sufficient atonement for his offense. At first, David impetuously reacted and said, I'll destroy all of them. But then he said, when Abigail had brought David to reflection, he found that his vindictive purposes were highly criminal. And that if his anger was not groundless, if it was not groundless, it was at least far exceeded what the occasion called. And then he says this wonderful statement. In a word, this hastiness of temper prevents men from listening to the dictates of reason and makes them deaf to the every consideration of truth. Deaf to every consideration of truth. But now, not only have we learned a great deal from the harsh and intemperate words in our text, but let me very quickly consider also some facts in the record whose notice will bring lessons home to our heart. Number two, notice this. Ephraim well knew that these Midianite troops had come. They did it every year at the same time. And no doubt 
they knew when they would be there. And no doubt they knew that they were there. No doubt they were as knowledgeable of their vast encampment as was Gideon and all of Israel. They already knew. And from their own testimony in this verse 1, they knew that Gideon had put out a call for arms in his planned expedition. Why? With the knowledge of all these things, why did they not rise up on their own without a call and volunteer to the cause? <laughs> Can I put the question another way and remove it from the context of Israel and put it in our own? Could I put the question to you this way? Why do you wait when you already know what needs to be done? You say, I'm waiting for the pastor. Why? Do right. Do right. I'm waiting for the pastor's wife. Why? When you know what's right to do. I'm waiting for the deacon to speak to somebody. I'm waiting for some other brother. Why are you waiting when you know what needs to be done? Why are you waiting? Why didn't they volunteer? You come here. To get in. To chide him with strong words. Why didn't you call us? Well, might get in have said, why didn't you call me? Amen. <laughs> oh, why wait until the battle is over and then rush in with a critical spirit? Fault finding Matthew Henry said cowards will always seem valiant when the danger is over somebody else said reason runs low when chiding flies high Bush said but such is the perverse temperament of some men that under the influence of a morbid and envious spirit, they construe every exaltation of their neighbor as an injury done to themselves. And nothing is more common than for those who will not attempt to venture anything in the cause of God to be ready to censure those who show real zeal and enterprise. Brethren, i got to tell you, I've found that. <laughs> oh, I have found that more times than I wish I could testify. It's more common for those who will not attempt to venture anything 
to be ready to censure those who did. And then he says, how often too, when the danger is past, do these cowardly vaunt themselves about their courage? These type brothers or sisters never seem to step up beforehand, but they never fail of criticism afterwards, even as the battle rages on. And look at, you, I won't read it, but if you look at verse 2 and following, you find out this thing's not over yet. This thing's not, not all the Midianites are dead yet. This battle's still going on. This thing's yet to be finished. And right in the middle of it, these cowards attacked the servant. They didn't step up beforehand. But they've got every criticism now. I ask it again. Why didn't they volunteer? Why don't you? But now just before I close, could I just give a word of help to those who, like Gideon, have been the object of such calloused vindictiveness by other supposed brethren. Let me give a word of encouragement to you if you find yourself in Gideon's place. God will order, and this is point number three in case you're keeping a line. God will order just such trials, even for his choicest servants. I could never say it better than Blessed Richard Rogers said it in 1665. So I read his words. Here first, some man might think it an unseasonable event that befell Gideon, even in the chief spring of his glory. I mean, that in the very neck of the victory should come upon him such a cross and such a blow as to turn the solemnity and honor of his greatest act in subduing the Midianites into reproach and abasement. Psalm, says Rogers, may think this is a cruel blow. But the most wise God, who best knoweth how to keep his own children in compass, and seeth what corruption they carry about with them, by means whereof they cannot bear any great blessing or prosperity without swelling and pride. He, I say, doth commonly so dispose of them that with rare and special liftings up, and heightenings of them, either in grace, wealth, honor, success, or the like, whatever it is, he matcheth or mixeth some great coolings and buffetings with them. 
to keep them from falling dangerously in a slippery place in which they stand. Hmm. Of Gideon, we cannot certainly say anything, not with certainty, to his just reproof in any gross manner. But great infirmities of his we have heard. And therefore, doubtless, he being a man, he had that in him which might have puffed him up upon so great success. If God had not, by this great and unwelcome cross, prevented it. So Jephthah, coming fresh from a great conquest, was suddenly quailed by his only daughter. Job, in the midst of his flourishing and prosperous estate, hears all at once of his children in substance, destroyed and despoiled. Likewise, David had few victories, but that the Lord sent him a cooler upon them. The rebellion of Absalom, the cursing of Shemai, the insurrection of Sheba, the death of Ammon, the slaughter of Absalom, all of these were David's heart, which doubtless was enough to purge out of any superfluous humor which might rise up in him, so to keep him sober, temperate, and within holy compass. And then he concludes in these words, It is not so strange that the Lord should thus sickic, that is, medicate, his servants, being already surfeited with excessive and sinful abuse of their prosperity. But it is his great mercy that he should often diet them with these potions that they may prevent surfeiting. And when we see that God Sauces their dainties. I love that expression. Write that down. Contemplate that. Meditate on that sometime this week. God sauces their dainties. With some herbs, let us be thankful to him and say, Lord, I had else fed too much on this dish till I had overlaid my stomach, even as children who finding honey eat too much of it. Therefore, blessed be thy name, who suffered me not to be sick of it. Rather than this, if thou shouldest let me alone, then I should be provoked to vomiting, which is much worse. Can I just say it in a word? God, give us grace to be humble. God, give us grace to be humble. That we not require these medications. 
to keep from being sick. Better to be humble than sick. So then I close the study of this very first verse with the words again of Simeon, who well said it, in preparation to the message for next week, Gideon's, uh, Simeon said, We are apt to advance great military, sorry, to admire, we are apt to admire great military exploits and to account men honorable in proportion to the victories they have gained. But there is a victory over ourselves that is far more dignified than the most extended conquests over others. A victory, Simeon talks about, over ourselves. And as soon as we go to verse 2, we'll find out that Gideon has this greater victory. It wasn't his victory over the Midianites that stands out. It's his victory over himself that we'll find in verse 2. Stand with me, please, and sing with me, please. Number 697, 697, how sweet, how heavenly is the sight when those that love the Lord in one another's peace delight and thus fulfill his word. How sweet, how heavenly is the sight when those that love the Lord in one another's peace delight and thus fulfill his word. When each can feel his brother's sigh And with him bear apart When sorrow flows from eye to eye And joy from heart to heart when free from envy, scorn, and pride, our wishes all above, each can his brother's failings hide and show our brother's love. Love is the golden chain that binds the happy souls above. 
and he is an heir of him that finds his bosom glow with love. <sighs>